Welcome back to Spurs Over 34 Years. You're listening to part two. As Ian Wallace, Peter Wright and myself, Simeon Wright, continue to take you down White Hart memory lane. As previewed at the end of part one, we'll now take you back to 2001, which was an eventful year both on the field of play and in the boardroom. New ownership beckoned as Daniel Levy became chairman when the Enoch Group took over the club from Alan Sugar and the new regime removed George Graham as manager and replaced him with Glenn Hoddle. Ian remembers the infamous style of play seen under Graham in the company of sports marketing guru Matthew Fletcher-Jones when the project shone the spotlight on season 2000-2001 on the 4th of May 2020. The football was just so dreadful. Less than um, mouth-watering, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went away to Ipswich actually on the 30th of December, an away game. We lost 3-0 away at Ipswich and I remember Rebrov was on the bench and Doherty was up front and I remember just watching the, the crowd were like you know slating off the man in the raincoat he was just standing there it was it was possibly one of the darkest points being a Spurs fan it was yeah. bloody cold as well the football was just turgy wasn't it Matt the football was was awful but there was also a kind of feeling of inevitability about it it was kind of hated when he was he was hired you know even though the success he'd had and then he stuck to his guns and just played that type of football but you always just kind of felt we were going nowhere and it was going to come to an end sooner or later. Yeah. And you had to just sit it out. And, I, you know, I, I'll confess to, you know, a bit of loss of interest at the time because you were like, well, this guy's going, our team's yeah. average and we don't try and play entertaining football. You know, I'd rather maybe have Dominguez and Fox bombing down the wings with yeah. very because at least it'd be a bit more entertaining than nil-nil after nil-nil. The voice of White Hart Lane, Pete Abbott, knew ex-Arsenal boss Graham had found himself at the incorrect football club from day one. He was the wrong man at the wrong club. I remember the day he came, actually. I remember doing an interview with him the day he came. And I asked him a question, I asked him something like, Spurs fans might be uh, a, a bit perturbed by your your, you know, your perceived style of play. What, what would you say to Tottenham fans to, to, to try and sort of reassure them? And his answer was, Fans of football clubs are all the same. As long as you're winning, they don't care what the football's like. If you think that's the, that's you know what this club is like, then you're not going to last that long. Um, and he and he did. Uh, out of all the managers I've worked with over the years, he's the one that I I didn't really get on with. Pleasure there, of course, to hear stadium announcer Pete Abbott's iconic voice right here on Why One Spurs. George Graham's reign lasted from October 1998 until March 2001 before he became the first managerial casualty of the new board. This was his last job in football management. The following clip now is another from our densely detailed 2000-2001 season review. The backdrop of all this at the time, Peter, there was a company who wanted to buy Spurs at the time, so they were called INIC, as we all know them, which stands for English National Investments Company. Peter, do you sort of remember this going on in the background? I just, I just remember a kind of a little an air of tox, toxicity around. Um, was it the Alan Sugar regime coming to an end? Yes. And him kind of falling out with everybody. I just seem to remember him being in the papers and seemed to be getting fed up with the whole thing and looking looking to sell the club. Do you say looking back, his tenure was a success, really? A few peaks and troughs. I mean, obviously we got that FA Cup win in. Was that under him? Yeah, it was on me. Yeah, it was, yeah. After he fell out with Venables, I kind of fell out with him a bit. He never had the money, really, did he? He'd kind of you know, come to the rescue of the club, effectively. But I don't think he really had the money to push the club along. And he obviously didn't want to take the risk of putting his hand in his pocket either. So I think it all just kind of ground to a halt. So this was being talked about in December. I think they took over in roughly about December, but then Sugar stayed on as chairman until February, ending a 10-year association. They bought a stake of 29.9% for $22 million. Basically, they, they were famous for taking stakes in clubs who regularly appear in European competition. Then they would tighten the management structure, then capitalise on the marketing and media rights. You know, we were right in their sweet spot, weren't we, Fletch? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. They obviously saw the, you know, I hate to use the phrase sleeping giant or something like that. You know, the, obviously the money 
was growing in the Premier League. We were just coming up to, you know, nine, ten years of it, of Sky's dominance. And I think the kind of the amount of money spent in the summer by some clubs. And I think the, the power was shifting as well. Because I think a few years before, we'd been a bit of a retirement home, hadn't we? You know, yep. even those big players coming to Chelsea, the Hullets and so on, were at the end of their careers. And that was starting to change. And Serie A was no longer in the ascendancy. And I think they spotted the long game while having pockets deep enough to kind of push things along if they needed to in the way that Sugar didn't. You know, we're a very different club now, 20 years later. Levy was 38 when this happened and it was quoted that he would be responsible to oversee a five-year plan to get Spurs back to one of the top sides in the country. So in the five years after this, we finished 9th, 10th, 14th, 9th and then in the last year we finished 5th. So Peter, it's quite interesting that did they sort of achieve it? I think they've achieved a a, a bit of stability on the uh, financial side. Uh, There's no way that we were ever going to go bust. And I mean, even, I mean, Sugar is quite an astute guy in the sense that he knew sort of how to deal financially. But the fact is that he'd um, bought the club without bothering to tell his wife. I think, I think he famously came home one day and said, oh, I, uh, by the way, I bought Tottenham Hotspur. You know, I'd say that the progress on a financial stability under Edic, don't know about on the football pitch. When he took over, someone from Soccer Investor magazine, which is a business magazine, said... Tottenham will be NX flagship club, but the company is unlikely to make millions available overnight. They have not done that with their other clubs and are unlikely to change their approach. You know, ain't that the truth, guys? Yeah, very cautious. Absolutely. Also, Damien Camoli um, said to Forbes magazine recently about Levy that he feels that they should build a statue of Levy outside White Hart Lane for what he's done for the club. I mean, Mac or Sim, can I Sim? Can I throw this at you? How, how do you sort of feel about that comment by Damien Camoni? I think if we see enough on the pitch for that to happen, I think I'd probably prefer to see a statue of Harry Kane rather than a statue of yeah. Daniel Levy. You see, like, the five-year plan that they set out in 2001 to 2006, that would have been. I suppose, yeah, you could, say, you could say that they did achieve what they'd set out to do. But I think what we're starting to see, and we've seen it many times where we get to that crossroads and we go back and then we get to the crossroads again and go back, there seems to be a glass ceiling with this ownership and the whole strategy of revolving around European football and all that, that's, that's great. And they're achieving that consistently. We've been in Europe for over 10 years every season now. But there seems to definitely be a limit to where they can take us and we seem to have reached that limit again and then fallen. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Matt, anything to add on that from a from your professional sports market? If it's a fundraiser for the Levy statue, then I'm happy to put a few quid in. You know, you just spoke ten minutes ago about us losing to Ipswich three nil in you know in two thousand and where we were. We've got the best stadium in the world. We've got the best training ground. We've been to a Champions League final, which is remarkable. You know, and it's all happened under Enoch and you know we weren't in the best place when it started we're in a better place you know we probably should have won the league three years ago or so on but I think kind of bigger picture in how we're financially run with what's going on in the world at the moment if all the money kind of came out of you know the likes of Man United and City and so on you know we'd be one of the few clubs left standing really so I'm a fan of how things have been run financially. I, I, I would have to um, ask you, the euphoria of the goal at Ajax, how does that compare with the publishing of balance sheets that show that we've had record profits? I mean, does that excite you in the same way? as you know? Not in the same way, but yeah. maybe you don't get one without the other unless yeah. you get bought by some oil barons or something like that. We haven't had the ridiculous investment of a Chelsea or Man City or that's what wins leagues these days or you run the club in a proper financial way and now more on the appointment of Glenn Hoddle Sugar stepped down in February and then uh, Sim if you can sort of update us what happened in the March of that year we went for a horrendous run the Ipswich game you're talking about was right in the middle of that it started at the beginning of December we lost to Old Trafford and then we went on a run of one win in 11. And in January, there was a run of four straight nil-nil draws against Everton, Southampton, West Ham and Charlton. Do you guys remember that? I do. 
detergent. Wow. I went to the Charlton one at home. It was absolutely... Oh. <laughs> and that was the last of the four, wasn't it? The Charlton one. Was it, yeah, what what was the feeling walking out of the ground? Were people laughing? Were people were people booing? Did they... uh, yeah, yeah. It was it was toxic. I think someone said toxic earlier, and then sort of beat Man City away after that. But then we pretty much lost a couple of games, and then I think he was sacked after that game. Sim, am I right? After yeah. the Derby County game? Yeah, he went after the Derby game. Hoddle came in five about yeah. five days later, but ahead yeah, before the semi-final. Can I just ask a question here for our PR person um, here? So do you think obviously Enico came in? You know they didn't spend any money, but do you think the Hoddle thing was a PR gift by Levy and Enic to the fans? Partially, yes. It's kind of a no-brainer, really, isn't it? Hoddle's probably the reason I support Spurs, and you know you've had an ex-Arsenal manager playing turgid football. Although it could be said that getting virtually anyone in at that time over Graham would have been welcomed, but. On the other hand, Hoddle then was a quality manager. That England team in 98, you know, who went out to Argentina on penalties, was probably, you know, I'd argue the best one, certainly the best squad looking back, possibly even better than the 96 team. You know, I remember Beckham getting sent off and he brought Paul Merson on and everyone out thought, what the hell is he doing? Uh, he was tactically very, very good. And I remember being hugely excited, not just because of Graham going and it being hobbled back, but thinking, well, this guy knows what he's doing. He's been a successful manager with Chelsea and Swindon and England and so on. I can't remember how he was doing at Saints. I think he was struggling a little bit. But I remember thinking, you know, he, he could be the right man for the job. And obviously yeah. Yeah, there was a, you know, a, a kind of positive uplift for the fans. Hoddle came in, his first game was the Arsenal semi. Peter, what's your memory of that game? Well, um, we went up to Manchester actually for that. I just remember uh, Sol Campbell getting injured, kind of like, and going off, which turned out to be his last game for us. Gary Doherty, I'm sure, although you say the lineup is that he was in defence, but I'm sure he played up front. Well, at least he definitely scored our, he scored our goal anyway. And uh, just obviously real disappointment. Perez scored yet another goal against us and I think it turned out the best part of the evening was our night out in the less the least salubrious part of Manchester where there were pregnant women out on the pool <laughs> the <laughs> night before. that's a niche nightclub pregnant women nightclub interesting yeah. Peter I think the, I think I remember uh, Nick's dad saying at least you can't get them up the door <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, interesting moving to but I, I felt, I mean, that game, Fletcher, I don't know if you remember it. I mean, I remember it very well. I mean, they were much better than us. They dominated the whole game, even though we took the lead from Doherty, as you said. Um, Ledley was on the bench in that game. And we had, a, we had a back four of Carr, Campbell, Perry and Young. Matt, that's not going to hold up against that Arsenal team at the time, was it? No, they, they were, you know, I hate to say it, they were a quality team and they steamrolled us. And we probably just annoyed them by scoring first, I think, which was... I think it was a bit of a scramble, and I don't know. I can't, I can't remember if he played up front or not. Luke Young lives on my streets. We're only on nodding terms, but I've seen him walking his dog on Wimbledon Common. We've spoken about Sol Campbell a lot, but I was gutted when we lost Stephen Carr, who was probably our best player in the period after after that. Obviously, we lost him to the mites, the greats of Newcastle United. You heard Sol Campbell's name mentioned in that last section. Well, we won't go into the debacle surrounding his Spurs career on this podcast, but check out our episode entitled Sol Campbell, Can He Ever Be Forgiven? from early last year for a very balanced review of his exit to Arsenal on a free transfer in July 2001. You can pretty much just Google why he won Spurs, Sol Campbell, can he ever be forgiven? And it should come up. Hoddle lasted two full seasons as manager before he was sacked six premiership matches into the 2003-04 season. Unlike Fletch, Dan Dawson was never convinced by Hoddle. First Ian, then Dan. We want to win the premiership, of course we do, and that is my ultimate goal. But it's early doors to be talking about that. Those were the words of Glenn Hoddle when he became Daniel Levy and Enoch's first managerial appointment in March 2001. But two and a half years later, the club legend also became the first of seven sackings by Enoch, departed after six Premier League games 
It's just four points to show for the season. Do you think Glenn Hoddle managed too early? Do you think he, he didn't get enough managerial experience before he took England and Tottenham jobs? I wonder if he sort of took over, say, five or six years later, because he was player manager at about mm. 34, wasn't he? So, yeah. I think that's a really great point. I think you might be right. Peter, what's your thoughts on that? Did he, did he manage too early? I don't think so, because I think he's a player manager at Chelsea. He may have got the Chelsea job off the back of what he'd done at Swindon, and he'd done he did, yeah. he'd done really well at Swindon. And he had uh, did he have Colin Calderwood alongside him or something? I don't. No, no, he had and John Gorm- Gorman. Yeah, Gorman. Gorman. Uh, and he'd done really well at Swindon, which had got him the Chelsea job. When Hoddle becomes the first managerial signing for Enoch, they bring in the homegrown hero. They brought in someone who the fans are obviously going to love straight away. Thinking back to his his playing days. I just don't know if it was the right move for Hoddle at the time. I don't think he'd really had enough of the managerial game to take his boyhood club to anything spectacular. He'd taken England to the 98 World Cup and you know I know it's different from international football, club football, but he certainly cut his teeth in management by the time he came to Spurs in 2001. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he had the best players in the country as well to, to, to do that with, whereas at Spurs, I mean, we're, I'm sure we're going to go through some of these players. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, we are, Dan, you're right, there's some dark days. But I just want to sort of bring up a point um, at the end of this season, the 2003-04 season, um, Stephen Carl left for Newcastle and played in the Champions League the same year and finished fifth, four points of qualification for the 2004-05 competition. How concerning was it to see someone who played over 200 times for Spurs move to Newcastle? I mean, Spurs, like, going to Newcastle above Spurs, did he have a point considering we'd come from 14? I love Stephen Clark. I thought he was a great player. I think it's a tough one when you've cheered on a player like that who's obviously bled for the club and been there through some very dark days. You see them, see them move on, you want them to go somewhere better. But, I mean, no offence to Newcastle, they were knocking on the door, but I wouldn't say they are a bigger club. At the yeah. time, I remember being particularly hurt by him. He was like probably one of our best ever right backs. I thought. I just remember the screamer he scored against Man United. Hold that thought, Peter, because stadium announcer Pete Abbott went back to that wonder strike from Stephen Carr against Man United in October 1999 as his leading faux pas in his job as the voice of White Hart Lane. I think it might have been my first ever season doing it. Um, Stephen Carr scored. I think it was his first ever Spurs goal against Man United. It was an absolute screamer from about 35 yards. And I just looked down, because I'd I, I seen him pick the ball up on the halfway line and it didn't look you know, as though it was any danger. So I'd look down at my script to see what I was doing next and all of a sudden I hear the roar go up and the ball's in the back of the net and I've no idea how it's got there. And it, back then, when, there was no monitors. Now you've got a bank full of monitors so you can see who scored, but back then you didn't. So... It looked to me as though everybody was was running to congratulate Raw Fox. So <laughs> go with that. <laughs> Brilliant. They, they they show that goal on the big screens a lot. And if you listen really carefully, you can hear me in the background saying, first goal for Spurs, number seven, Raw Fox. <laughs> there was that one. And that was probably the worst. Although the other really bad one was um, Fernando Lorente. Actually, before he joined us, when he was still at Swansea, I spent an entire afternoon calling him Fernando Morientes. No one's perfect, Pete, don't worry. Sticking with great goals, though, and interestingly one from the other fullback position, another contribution to the podcast from Eric Edmund. I remember Dawson came in his first game. He was just signed. He and Andrew Reid were just signed from Nottingham. And the big player in that team was Andrew Reid, but... The one who really made it that Spurs was Mikey Dawson, and yeah. that first game he was phenomenal together with Ladley uh, at the centre back. This was your only goal for Spurs, so you know, this is annoyingly that and I think Sim will back me up on this. <laughs> when, anyone, when anyone researches anything about Eric Edmund, it always comes up about this goal, but it annoys me because there's so much more to you from your career so it frustrates me a little bit so that's why we didn't want to concentrate the whole sort of podcast on this but if you can sort of tell us about the goal in your through your eyes it'd be fantastic yeah i remember it was uh, we had a corner and the ball came to me and i i remember uh, robbie was shouting for the ball and i took it forward a couple of yards and then just smashed it from the moment it left your foot did you know that it was in no not really to be honest i thought this can be good and then yeah it's great 
I remember afterwards in the in the bus going back to the airport, Freddie said to me, "You can have ten of my goals, and I can have your." <laughs> and I was actually considering it because he scored a couple of really nice goals. Eric Edmund talking us through the screamer he scored against Liverpool at Anfield in April 2005. We'll go back to the early Enoch days shortly, as well as take a glance at the Irving Scholar ownership period. But before all that, we asked Eric over the summer about one of our most iconic central defenders, Ledley King, who was club captain between 2005 and 2012, the year he retired. I always say Ledley is the best player I ever played with. I felt every time I played next to him, I had a good game. Then when he was gone for whatever reason with injury or, or whatever i felt oh I, I didn't have a good game so maybe he has something to do with my performances as well <laughs> as a first, as first player because nah he was just phenomenal you know and although at the time he was already having uh, those uh, injury problems he stayed inside until thursday he come out and jog a couple of laps around the pitch where we were training friday he do the boxes if he felt the right he was playing the small games also before, and then man on the match every Saturday. On to another central defensive stalwart in a Spurs shirt now, ex-skipper Gary Mabbott. First Ian Wallace, then Peter Wright, then Bob Jordan, speaking during our 1997-98 season review. This campaign saw the club bid an emotional farewell to Gary Mabbott, who served as centre-half for 16 years, and 11 years as captain having taken the armband on a permanent basis from Graham Roberts. Peter, how, how did you feel about Mabbott um, retiring at the time? Well, my feeling was that all good things must come to an end, you know. But I've got, in his case, I've got nothing but good things to say about him. Not only did he lift silverware in a Spurs shirt, but he put his body on the line consistently on a number of occasions. Everyone remembers John Fashionu's elbow, which gouged his eye socket. You know, I can still see the horrific pictures of that. He's a genuine Mr. Tottenham, I think. A guy who overcame juvenile onset diabetes where he had to inject himself every day to become a top-level sportsman with those leadership qualities that I think have been lacking in our dressing room in recent years. And he managed to combine that with being what seems a genuinely nice guy. I don't think I've ever heard him say anything bad about anyone, even Gaza's craziness. <laughs> so, you know... Yeah, I love, he I love Gary Mabbott. He seemed a bit of a mentor for him, though, Peter, didn't he, really? <laughs> he did, yeah. And Gaza was a tall mentor. <laughs> he, he definitely was. Uh, Bob, how did you feel? The season prior to him him actually retiring, he only had one appearance, the 96-97. He broke his leg early doors. 97-98, uh, he only had nine appearances plus three substitute appearances. The previous season, he had 41. That really shows the guy's demise, unfortunately. He went from being the mainstay, the heart of our central defence, to coming back as a bit part player in what was becoming a bit of a shambles. As you'll recall from part one of Spurs over 34 years, that shambles Bob's referring to is 1997-98's relegation battle under Christian Gross, which Jurgen Klinsmann returned to the club in the January of that season to win for us. Some heavy info to get through here, so listen to accountant and why he won Spurs anchorman Ian Wallace's explainer as to Lord Sugar's predecessor at the top of the Tottenham Hotspur boardroom. Irving Scholar took control of the club in December 1982, of course out of the time remit of this project, but he had teamed up with fellow property developer Paul Bobrov and Scholar became chairman in 1984. Ian picks it up from here. When Scholar sort of took over, though, he inherited like you know five million of debt, but he started to try and like get rid of this debt by using not his commercial now. And also, he bought a lot of small companies. I think we bought a big stake in Hummel, the kit manufacturer, and we just seem to be buying a lot of small companies. And as Peter said, you know, he's floated Spurs on the yeah. stock exchange, That's which was the you know which is quite common now. You know, United were on the stock exchange, but you know he was bit of a visionary actually so possibly you know he he wasn't all bad but scholar was a big driver as we said in getting more tv money early 90s late 80s you know we, we were in a lot of financial troubles due to investment in new players the construction and the debts of the west stand 
and also the failed investments of those companies I just mentioned. Also, our crowds wasn't massive then. Football wasn't massively crowded. There was a lot of hooliganism and TV money was small. So, you know, it's quite dark days for us, Peter. Do you remember, like, you know, when in yeah. going into the 90s, we were nearly going out of business, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, there was a talk in the media about, you know, financial problems and, you know, when you're just a fan, you don't know how deep it runs. What was incredible, Peter, was, you know, we had terrible debts and Scholar reached out to Robert Maxwell Oh, yeah. To help bounce Spurs out. I kind of obviously, remember that, yeah. Obviously, this went massively Pete Tong, as they say, and yeah. Scholar and Bob Roth had a massive falling out, and then a power struggle broke out between the two of them. Scholar won this power struggle, Bob Roth resigned, but then Venables was the manager at the time, and he was sort of trying to steer the ship while all this was going on behind him. And then Venables decided, right, I'm going to try and get some investors and buy the club. That sort of took us to 1990. So this was all going on while Venables was managing the club. So Venables went to about five different backers before he actually teamed up with Sugar. And then Sugar possibly doesn't get the credit he deserves as he's come in, invested, stabilised the club. You know, he was instrumental in getting the, the TV deal done. So possibly Sugar not getting the credit he deserves from Spurs fans. Scholar was quite a bitter man when he left and he left this parting shot after Venables and Sugar obviously bought the club off him. He said, the first year will be a honeymoon, the second year will be a divorce. How well, true. He wasn't wrong there, was he? <laughs> he wasn't wrong. Yeah, yeah. You heard Ian describe Scholar as a visionary. Well, along with Sugar, he also played a large part in the formation of the Premier League, which of course revolutionised the game with astronomical television money. Matthew Fletcher-Jones joined us again to review 1992-93 and here are a few snippets. As of August 1992, English football would never be the same as the inauguration of the FA Premier League propelled the game on these shores into a different stratosphere. 28 years later, Sky Sports subscriptions are pricier than ever. Transfer fees and player wages have leapt out the proverbial test tube and 49 clubs have competed within the walls of the promised land. Some have yo-yoed, many have burst their banks, and one no longer exists. Our beloved Tottenham Hotspur, however, has not been only present each Premier League season, but was also one of the big five clubs who, in October 1990, met with the managing director of London Weekend Television, Greg Dyke, for initial top-flight breakaway talks. Our representative at the meeting was former chairman Ivan Scholar, while the other four were Everton, Liverpool, Man United, and some team from Woolwich. Thank you, as ever, listeners, for tuning in to Why One Spurs, which, as you would have gauged from that opening, has reached the inaugural Premier League campaign in our season-by-season Tottenham Review Series. I'll come to you first, Matt, as our sports marketing expert. What were your thoughts at the time as to what was happening to English football? I think it was kind of inevitable, really. People probably remember the same, but football had fallen a long way, particularly by the 80s. And, uh, you know, with kind of hooliganism and obviously crowds falling and Heysel and Hillsborough and so on. Um, and we even had a stage where, you know, there was no, you know, there was no football on TV at times and people were watching American football on Channel 4. Yeah, so yeah. post Italia 90, I think a bit of love came back to football. And I think it was kind of the right way forward, really. And I certainly remember being excited about it. There was a product there. Do you think Sky sort of did well at the start? I think they did, and it's remarkable if you, you know, you kind of look at some of the Sky presentation around the time. They're obviously looking to kind of bring US-style razzmatazz, and they had their cheerleaders and all that type of thing. But the kind of mainstays of what they introduced, pre-match chat on a Saturday and Soccer Saturday, Super Sunday, starting hours before the game, and Monday Night Football are all still there, quite remarkably. You know, as Pete was saying, Italia 90 just changed everything and made everyone remember what they loved about football in these fantastic stadiums and, you know, kind of great players. And they just kind of spotted the opportunity. And, you know, rather than, you know, they obviously won the battle for the TV rights against ITV, but... You know, the big match on the, on a Sunday afternoon on ITV wasn't, you know, anything to get out of bed for. And, and Sky just kind of packaged it up. And, you know, this, this game with what would have been, you know, more than 100 years history at that time 
and got everyone just to fall a little bit back in love with it, really. You'll hear Fletch again before the end talking about our transfer policy during the 2001-02 episode. But it's now time for you to hear from Spurs famous statsman Kevin Hill, a fan of over 50 years and season ticket holder who's missed just three home matches since 1982. Kevin joined us to review season 1989-90 when Italia 90 stars Paul Gascoigne and Gary Lineker were both playing their football at the lane. Terry Eltel Venables went continental with the transfer business of July 1989, picking up the phone to former employees FD Barcelona in a successful effort to bring goal machine Gary Lineker to the lane. Chris Waddle went off to the south of France to join Marseille for four and a half million. He was the player of the year 1987-88, was it? Yeah, I yeah. think he was, yeah. And um, obviously he played in the World Cup for England in 1990. But I just want to kind of find out how you felt when he went off, because, you know, it was exciting getting a player like Lineker in, I'm sure. But Waddle was kind of in the... I mean, he was 29 at the time, in the peak of his powers. Was that a disappointment to see him go? Yeah, I thought it was a shame. Uh, yeah, definitely a yeah. shame. Because that means we never got to see Waddle, Gascoigne and Lineker in the same team. We just missed out on seeing those three on the pitch together, didn't we? I agree. And yeah. do you think, Peter and Kevin, to throw this out there, that if he'd have stayed, but looking where we finished, we possibly could have had a title tilt that season. Kevin, how do you feel about that? I think so. I mean, what's just been said, I mean, to have those three together, I mean, it, it would have been something else. Once the transfer was made, there was things coming out of the club about the debt, which obviously um, months down the line, um, you know, was going to come back and really bite us big, wasn't it? White Hart Lane was actually mid-refurbishment during this season. Kevin Hill. The first two games, it was 16,000 for the Luton game and 17 for the Chelsea game. I can remember the East Stand obviously wasn't in use for those two games. And then it wasn't open fully until the Arsenal game in the October, I think. Correct, yeah. Uh, during that 1989-90 season, which Kevin reviewed with us, we won at Old Trafford in the December for the last time until 2012 and Stamford Bridge for the last time until 2018, while we beat Arsenal at home in the October to open our shiny new stand. It was a, a new stand and you know Spurs were touting it that we had the best ground in London now and whatever. I wouldn't necessarily have agreed with that, but obviously it was a thing of the time, more executive boxing. Like, that, that's one sort of game that stands out a little bit. I, I, I think we worked really hard. I, I, I think it was a midweek game, I think, wasn't it? That? It was, yeah, correct. Yeah. I can remember Sedgley going off and um, he had an eye injury, and uh, I think they stitched him up and he came back on. But it was a real, real good performance. Cause, did Arsenal win the league the year before? That, yeah, they did. They, they were actually much better team than us. They had some really good players in their team, so it was a it was a bit of a shock actually. But I, I do remember going to the game as well, Kevin, and it really was rocking that night. But I think it was rocking a lot because they had the whole. Remember the times they used to have the whole of the Park Lane end. Peter, do you remember those days when the old oh, yeah, fans would have the whole? It really just made like the crowd. You know, they make the atmosphere just fantastic, didn't it? Yeah, I was stuffed at the painful defeat of them winning the title on our ground in seventy seventy one. We also signed the late Justin Edinburgh from Southend United in the January of 1990. Justin has been missed terribly by family, friends and the world of football since his sad passing on the 8th of June 2019. Anthony Costa from UK boy band Blue spoke about him during the project. I'll tell you one person who was a lovely bloke, God rest his soul, was Justin Edinburgh. Yeah, he, he turned up once at a, at a Wembley gig. Our manager at the time was a big gooner and uh, he, he still absolutely terrorised me every, every year. And he said to me, there's someone in there that wants to sell out to you. He bought his family. So he's obviously bought tickets, but he knew that I was a massive Spurs fan. And um, bless him, he was such a nice bloke, man. And he was in like the VIP area. And I went up to him, I was like, oh my God, Justin Edinburgh, you know. And then I, the first question was, did you mean to be sent off against Leicester City? <laughs> Romy Savage. And, 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 Romy he started, Savage. And, and he laughed, he really laughed. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, yeah. He's such a nice bloke, absolute diamond of a geezer, and it's just sad that we've lost him. Anthony also recalled his memories of one of Spurs' most iconic moments of this 34-year period. Mavrit has gone forward with Stewart to the right, Lineker and Howes to the left. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! That is... Schoolboy's own stuff. Oh, I bet even he can't believe it. 
obviously you were born in 81, we won the cup, so, yeah. cup. so in 91 we won the cup again, so you were age 10, what's your sort of memory of that cup final, must have been fantastic being Yeah, I mean, my memory of that was, I was living in Highbury at the time. Oh God, Yeah, I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a place called Mountgrove Road, which was obviously near the Highbury Stadium. My dad had a factory there, so back in the day in the 80s, a lot of Greeks, Turkish people, Jewish people, had clothing, it was a manufacturing game. So my dad's factory was there and we moved to Cyprus in 87 and came back in 1990 and we had nowhere to live. So we ended up living in my dad's factory for about six months. And then my granddad gave us one of the flats because he was waiting for a tenant to leave. Anyway, he gave us one of the flats upstairs and it was like a two bed flat. And I went to had to go to school in Highbury, and I was the only Spurs fan. Oh, no, yeah, mate, yeah, yeah, that was hard, man. That was hard. And luckily, I could look after myself. I mean, I'm not a fighter, but my dad opened a calf in Mountgrove Road, and the day we beat Arsenal in the FA Cup semi-final, my dad put Spurs everywhere. But because my because my dad was really light, it was more banter. Where were you for his free kick? Because I was up in the stand. I was. He was up and stand. I was in. I was in my flat with my dad and my mum watching it, just jumping for joy. And I remember screaming out the window, and these two people walking past. Yeah. Well, like, oh, wicked of Arsenal scored. Yeah. And I went, nah, mate, it's Gaza. Yeah. Gaza's just scored, mate. I had a really high <laughs> voice, obviously. Yeah. And these people, these blokes, looked up, and I'll never forget their faces and just shook their heads. Do you remember the John Motson or was it Barry Davis commentary? He said, oh, yeah, he's, he's, got, he's, he's not going to take it. He's not going to try yeah. from there, is he? He is, you know. He's not gonna, he is, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> great. Great, great, great. Another immensely sad loss of recent years is former England, Liverpool and Tottenham goalkeeper Ray Clements, who passed away in November 2020. He spent seven seasons at White Hart Lane, winning the FA Cup in 1982 and the UEFA Cup in 1984, while Ray's son Stephen Clements went on to spend five seasons with Spurs, having broken through the youth setup in 1997. It was Tony Parks who saved the winning penalty in that UEFA Cup final against Anderlecht in 84, but Clements did pick up a medal, having been on the bench that night. Spurs season ticket holder and goalkeeper himself in his younger days, Eric Walton, joined us to look over our 1988-89 and 1987-88 campaigns, which saw us take a goalkeeping angle for Eric. Lockdown, I'm bored. I'm bored, Ian. It's so boring, just not being able to socialise, not being able to go to the pub, not being able to go to a game, of course, or even just go to a coffee shop. I'm so bored, I agreed to do this podcast. Carol Borderman. But I'm also very lucky. Who would you say is the best we've ever had in that position? Well, thinking about that, over the years, I'm... Sticking with sort of my years, I wouldn't be able to go back to the 1950s. I'm not quite that old. But um, number three, the third best goalkeeper I've seen at White Hart Lane was Aurelio Gomez. As you mentioned earlier, I used to play in goal and the top feeling you got as a goalkeeper was you just pulled off a save. And their forwards and even your own defenders thought the ball was going in and you've just tipped it round the post. And that's the top feeling for a goalie that I used to get. And Gomez used to make us feel like that as fans. You'd think, oh my goodness, it's going in. And then Gomez saved it. And he did that. He was a cool man, wasn't he? Oh, long arms, long arms. Well, he, also did, he also did the, the exact opposite a lot as well, didn't yeah. he? Well, I mean, in his, in his good times, he was pretty, he had, he had one really good season, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Yes, he did. Being Brazilian, he had a lot to adapt to. And I understand he worked very hard on adapting his game to cope with all the crosses, all the Route 1 football. And I think Tony Parks was his goalkeeping coach. It just depends what season you're talking about with Gomez, isn't it? Because he just became a bit of a calamity, didn't he? He, uh, unfortunately, he let a few slip in and they were crucial. And his confidence went. But he got it back when he went to Watford. He suddenly became real... Was it Watford? It was, yeah. Yes. He got it back and he did brilliant things for them. My second best of all time, I would say, would be Ray Clements. He is the sort of goalkeeper that Fenders love to have because they know they can play their game and they can rely that Ray's behind them. Yeah. And his experience that he brought to Spurs just, just meant that we were, we were solid. We were solid at the back. And... 
When I was a young goalkeeper, I used to copy his pre-match warm-up. Weird side foot dance along the touchline when he warmed up, left foot over right, right foot over left, as he went sideways. He was the sort of keeper that would call for the ball, defenders knew he was coming, and he would get it. So I think that instilled confidence in the centre-backs. He brought that experience from Liverpool, and uh, you could you could see why he won such a lot at Liverpool, because he just made the defence solid. So number one, of course, has got to be the big man himself, Pat Jennings. Because when I was a kid, younger than a teenager, I used to sit indoors with a football and try and stretch my fingers to make them <laughs> as Pat Jennings. Because you can close your eyes and just imagine the crosses coming in and Big Pat would just leap up and just pluck the ball out of the air. And in those days, centre forwards were more intimidating. They could intimidate a goalkeeper, but you couldn't do that to Pat. And he was also very brave. He'd come out, he'd dive at forwards' feet, and he was very agile, brave, confident, and those big hands. I just think forwards probably thought, how are we going to score past this fella? During the last link, I alluded to the club's 1984 UEFA Cup triumph, which of course again falls outside of the 2020 to 1986 time span of Spurs over 34 years, but an honourable clip here from popular former midfielder Mickey Hazard, who starred on Why He Won Spurs last year and views winning that European trophy as the highlight of his career. Then we go into 83-84 season. If we can just talk about, you know, winning the UEFA Cup, we had some tough games on the way to that final and, and you were absolutely influential in that run. I mean, you know, we had Bayern Munich, uh, we had Feyenoord. I mean, I remember I remember going to the game when the Feyenoord game when Hoddle when Cruyff was playing and Hoddle was amazing amazing that night. He was just God. Simple Yeah, as. he was incredible yeah, that night. The UEFA Cup was my, and the final, obviously the semi-final from a personal point of view was one of my greatest nights in football. I managed to get the winner that took us to the final. The final was my greatest night ever in football. Growing up as a little boy, you never believe that these things are going to truly happen to you. You're never going to, you never, one, you're never going to believe you, you, you're going to play in an FA Cup final. But more importantly, you never believe that you're going to win a major European trophy in front of your own fans. I mean, how often has it been done? In the last kick of the game, the goalkeeper saves up a penalty to win you the trophy. Your manager is has resigned on the same night that you win the trophy. Um, he no longer is going to be your manager. If there's ever a script being written that betters that, then I've yet to see it. Mickey, do you feel like in, in the in the, the semi-final, um, in the, both the away and the home leg against Hadjuk Split, I mean, you scored a great goal, as you say. I mean, I think you're a bit modest in saying you scored the goal. It was a great free kick, which you, which is strange. I watched it again today. You only took two steps back. It was like, incredible. The goalkeeper was one side, on one side of the post, lining up, checking the wall. So I couldn't have a big run-up. I had to take it as quick as possible because I knew that he couldn't get across to the other side because the ref said, when you're ready, take so he'd give me permission to take it. But you were under a lot of pressure though, because Hoddle wasn't playing, Ardiles wasn't playing. This really was, you know, you really dragged us through and, you know, pulled us through, obviously with the other two, you know, the other players. But did, did you feel like that? There was a lot of pressure and responsibility on you? You know what? The added responsibility was something that I knew that it was up to me to run the game. Um, I was the, the, the creative one, the, 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 the playmaker, if you like. I have to say, you know, when people say to me, what would you consider to really be the greatest moment in your football career? For every sportsman, there's a moment in your life where the pressure is at its greatest. And you can choose to go one of two ways. You can fold or you can rise to the challenge. And I have to say that over the two legs of the final, to look so deep within my soul, to find the performances that I found makes me feel so proud. We keep meaning to play you cuts about the Hoddle management days as underwhelming for a few reasons as they were, but keep getting sidetracked by the vast content you generate when assessing 34 years with so many fantastic contributors. So I'll let the tape run for a while on Ian, Peter and Dan Dawson right now speaking about Hoddle. 
We had a very, very aging team at the time. We had quite a few players who were past, well, sort of past it, I think, Anderton, Sheringham in this season, Ferdinand Poirier, Stefan Freund, Casey Keller and Jamie Redknapp. I mean, what, was the strategy a good one which just didn't work out and was a gamble? Because the strategy, I think, from the outside looking in was let's get these experienced players in and let's try and get into Europe. I mean, Dan, did you think the strategy at the time was quite a good strategy? Well, I mean, it was it was basically all on experience, wasn't it? And sick note, kind of wasn't really playing many games and the games he did, he would normally get subbed off. So, I mean, you look at that list of players, though, Anderton, Sheringham, Ferdinand, Poirier, Freund. I love Stefan Freund and he loves me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you just see... Players at the twilight of their career, and they may be workhorses, but they, you know, they. When you sit, when you look at what our the teams around us were were doing, investing heavily in their youth policy, we're having rings run around us, and the, the, our our finishing position in the league table just proves that. I think. Yeah, we finished tenth that season, Dan. Season two thousand and two oh three, to be precise. There were two games that season I remember very well: the North London derby when Ziga scored. We drew one all. Great free kick, wasn't it? Yeah. We talked about Ziga briefly yesterday. Ziga, for me, was quality. And he was dead, dead ball specialist, for sure. And the other game that season was kind of just in the new year against Everton. And it was because it was a kind of, it was a real humdinger of a game. Another high-scoring game at the lane. And Robbie Keane got a hat-trick, a second-half hat-trick. It was a real topsy-turvy game as well. They scored first, and then it went yeah, backwards yeah. and forwards. It's great. It was, you know, and, then we, and we won in the last five minutes or something. It's those days when you're leaving the stadium and you're on a high because of the, a goal in the last five minutes to win the game means that the pub's always going to be rammed straight after the end of the game, and you can go and have a beer and a sing-song afterwards. And it's those ones. And when you have a season like this season that we're talking about those ones really stand out because <laughs> it didn't happen yeah, very often. I agree. One game we stood out for me, I went to an away game. My friend was living up in um, Birmingham at the time and I went out with him on the Friday night. We then went to Villa away the next day. I was thinking hangover and you know, the season was so turgid anyway. I, was, I wasn't looking forward to it. But we won 1-0 we away from home with we a you know, really cultured performance. And I thought that's the only time in that season where I felt we had some good signs. You know, The team that day was Keller, Tariko, King, Richards and Carr. Poirier, Ander and Davis, Buncherjevic, Sheringham and Keane. What did anyone think of Buncherjevic? Was he a centre-back? He's a centre-back midfield the... player, quite a cultured player. I seem to remember him being quite good on the ball. Yeah, yeah he was. Yeah, in a way that Dean Richards, God rest his soul, wasn't. Well, Buncherjevic died as well, didn't he? Yeah, they both yeah. died, yeah. It's, it's very sad. I remember him being either a sort of holding midfielder or a sort of like quite a ball-playing kind of centre-back. That Villa game, we went seventh after that game, and we were only three points off the top four. And then our, our form Correct. just absolutely capitulated. We only won three games after that, and that was in January. It was on the slide, and I, I hate to say it, but you could see that it wasn't really, um, it wasn't working for him from that season, and proven to be the following season it's, as well. It's form that continued yeah. on, wasn't it? We lost five-one yeah. and four-nil Middlesbrough and Blackburn in the last two games. Four-nil home to Blackburn in the last game, which is awful. What you got to remember as well about that season, I don't know if you guys remember, but that was that records relegation points tally where didn't West Ham go down with, was it 41 or 42 yeah, points? Yeah, 42 points. So we, we only, I know, I know we came 10th, we only got 50 points in that season. So, you know, without a few early results, we could have been drawn into that. Yeah, totally great. I remember going to that Blackburn game, the last game of the season, and do you remember the old members' books used to get? Blackburn, I think, went 4 0 up after about 60 minutes. I remember just everyone started throwing their, their season ticket books and their members' books onto the pitch. It was, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was just brilliant. It was just teaming down. It was, it was, it was quite funny. But then the good thing about that day was that even though we lost 4 0 at home, I remember going to the concourse and watching live West Ham got relegated away at Birmingham. So that sort of made up for that 4 0 awesome. loss. Hoddle for me should have been sacked at the end of that season. I hate to say it, the football was turgid all season. Apart from you know a little a little run, can we sort of go around the virtual table? Do we think Dan? Do you think Hoddle should have been sacked at the end of the season? Yeah, he should have. And it's only the fact that he's he had a uh, an amazing playing career in a Spurs shirt that that saved him. I think if that was Santini, if that was I mean you name him, if that was George Graham, if you know any of those performances had come from anyone who hadn't worn a Spurs shirt. He'd have been sacked at the end of that season and they'd gone out and got another manager. As the project was in descending chronological order, those 2002-03 outtakes just played were recorded after what you're about to hear, as the team described now the sadness in seeing Hero Hoddle dismissed in September 2003. 
funnily enough, to his old club Southampton, 3-1 at White Hart Lane was his final game. So that was that would have been pretty nice for them to inflict that on him yeah. the way he, the way he left it, as well. I mean, I, I remember going to that game, and I mean, I, I'm I'm one of Hoddle. You know, Hoddle's my favourite ever player. And I just couldn't boo. I just could. I just sort of remember walking out the ground, just feeling a bit deflated. But I just couldn't boo him because I loved him so much. But I, I just felt it was time for him to go. Dan, did you have that feeling as well? We're blessed recently as Spurs fans with the you know relative success compared to the years that we're talking about right now. And I think that we deserve the Champions League football after having to watch the crap that we were watching back then. Um, and Ben Hoddle's team is unfortunately in that category. <laughs> week in, week out, turning up and trying to build an atmosphere in a stadium where the football you're having to watch is just terrible. And you know, and you can you can see it on the players' faces. You can see it on the people that were signing that they're just not up to the right standard. The sort of inverted commas marquee signing. Was Postigo and he horribly misfired. I mean, we talk about sort yeah. of Soldado. It was a, it was another kind of Soldado, <laughs> really. You know, it just didn't happen yeah. for him. But also in Postiga, I mean, I, I used to make us for a lot of games that season. Postiga in the warm-up just looked absolutely world-class. But the moment, like, you know, he got into the pitch, he just looked off the pace. He didn't look physical enough for me. Dan, what was your sort of thoughts on him? He just didn't have that physicality. If ever there was a confidence player, um, it's him, right? It's like, you know, when the pressure's off, he looks world-class. And as soon as the, the pressure's on in-game, it took him a while to score his first league goal, didn't it? I can't remember how long, but I remember when he came in thinking, wow, oh, this guy's this guy's supposed to be brilliant. We, we should be stoked at having him. And every time he touched the ball, I was like, I just, I don't see it. I just, I couldn't see it at all. Dan, yeah. do, you think, do you think he needed an arm around the shoulder? I, I don't know yeah. Hoddle is that kind of guy, really. And, and that's and that, that's where we're talking about those, you know, the the lack of experience, managerial experience in a manager like Hoddle, where he, you know, he was always a flair player. He never really needed an arm around him when he was a player. He always had that sheer natural ability to fall back on. He just knew he could lose himself in a game and pick up um, and do something world class. It's hard to say whether they're his signings because I think it's hard to tell the truth about whether any of the signings that we've had since Enoch have taken over are truly the manager signings or not. So Hoddle perhaps not given the best possible chance to succeed and we summed up the transfer policy of the day in the review of 2001 Avoiding too much Sol Campbell chat once again with Matt Fletch. There was a headline that I found in, or an article that I, I mean the paywall unfortunately stopped me from reading it, but in the Telegraph from the time, 2001, the headline was Poyet joins Tottenham Oldies as Chelsea Eye Lampard. And I think this headline just says everything about the direction that we were going in compared to Chelsea at the time, would you guys say? Yeah, that's a great point actually, because I think um, if I could just put some context of our spending, can I put this question to you, Matt? So Spurs spent £25 million in that transfer window. So Sheringham, Poyet, Ziga, Casey Keller, Bunchachevich and Richards. So Spurs spent £25 million, Aston Villa £24 million, Blackburn £30, Sunderland £36, Leeds £42, Chelsea £45, Newcastle £28, Fulham £45 million and United £77 million. I mean, Matt, what do you, looking back, back, how did you sort of feel at that time? Yeah, it felt like it was the time when money was really starting to make a difference. That United team, the class of 92, was obviously getting older and kind of Liverpool before that had bought kind of players from lower division clubs and money was really starting to talk. And even though we had some and the new owners and so on, I don't think we had that much and there was a bit of papering over the cracks, wasn't there, in a lot of ways. I think we'd yeah. been poor, probably would say start of the Jerry Francis, the end of the Jerry Francis kind of period. We'd had about four or five years where we were a bit lost and weren't going anywhere. And I think there was a lot of short-term fixes going on. Yeah, and I think this really was a short-term fix, wasn't it? But to be fair, when, when you sort of look at the time, if you sort of put it so in there, I call it the dad's army strategy. He went for experience. I mean, if, if it had come off, you know, you never know, you know, if we had got into Europe, the strategy possibly was a bit short term, but it wasn't a dreadful strategy in hindsight, was it, Peter, really? Well, no, get some I, experience, I trying to get in the Europa League. Well, the Big Sam did a kind of a similar type of thing at Bolton where he uh, was bringing kind of journeyman players kind of towards the end of their career. JJ Cotters and the people like Campo and 
Jokaev. Yeah, Jokaev. They're just players in our twilight of their career, I suppose. But I just said, I think I said it in an earlier podcast, you've got to blend that in with a bit of uh, youth as well. There was nothing, no one youngsters coming through apart from, say, Stephen Clements, and we bought in Everington and Simon Davis. But there was no one else coming through, was there, really? Well, Out and Thelwell. I think Matt makes a really interesting point, though, about the fact that the foot, the money was just starting to come into the game. At that, not obviously not starting to come into the game, it was starting to make a massive difference. And you say that we've kind of gone for what you call the dad's army approach, which is a relatively cheap approach. I mean, we're not really paying transfer fees for people that are that age. But I think what's interesting to compare from that time is that I suppose the polar opposite to what we were doing was what Leeds United were doing. And at this time, this is when they were taking the gamble into the Champions League. This is actually the season where they missed out on the Champions League and it really cost them big time because they finished either fourth or fifth, but it wasn't enough. The gamble and they spent the 42 yeah. million. Yeah. yeah, with our new owners and taking a more cautious approach. This possibly was a wise thing to do at that time. We're confident we've at least got close to covering it all and massively hope you've enjoyed listening to both parts of Spurs over 34 years. Please give us feedback and even flag up things we've missed and every suggestion will be mentioned during the next YE1 Spurs podcast. Remember, it's at YE1 Spurs on Twitter and the best places to listen are Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks again, listeners, and everybody who has contributed to this proud, proud journey of ours. And we'll end part two of this podcast with a clip from one of the most entertaining and enlightening episodes of the project. The Steve Slade edition, released on the 14th of May 2020. Steve Slade, of course, the expert striker. And that episode is entitled Steve Slade's Beers and Burgers to Boiled Chicken. You went to the Toulon tournament with the England under-21s. And to get into that squad was really quite impressive at the time. You must have been really pleased to be going to that tournament, weren't you? No, I wasn't pleased at all. I didn't want to go. Why, why did you not want to go then? Play for England? I had a holiday booked. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd just been caught in a newspaper so I had to take my girlfriend away obviously at the end of the season you have to go in and see the manager and he says oh you've got to be this or do that and I remember him going to me alright you're going to go and play for England and I went no I'm not I went down on holiday and he was like no you're not because obviously if you play for England you do well your money goes up for the club doesn't it I suppose who was at the heart of the England set up at the time there? players uh, coaches Beckham was there but yeah. this, is, this was before he was uh, when, when I was there, they were raving on the back of this guy, Beckham, Beckham, Beckham. And I was like, he's rubbish. But yeah, I remember he did ping me a ball in from like 50 yards, like right to my toe. I remember mm-hmm. that, scored, I think that was against Brazil. And then that's when he came back and he scored from the halfway line. And then after that, he just started bending in free kicks all the time. And I was like, oh no, he's actually really good. <laughs> yeah, you, you did all right in that tournament as well. I think you scored You scored our only goals. You got, you got a couple of goals there, didn't you? Yeah, I scored, I scored three goals. During that tournament, though, you must have been great being involved once you were there. Um, no, did you enjoy first, being there or not? First time of my life. Ended up, really? Yeah, ended up in a fight. Ended up accidentally punching the England reserve manager in the face. Oh, Who's that? I don't know, some big geezer, Dave, I think his name was or something. <laughs> we had a couple of days off and it was really snidey at England. It was all clicky because obviously I, I went with Chris Day and he yeah. was two Tottenham and it was everything was about Beckham and his Man United people like everything was geared to them and mm. I was like I don't even really want to be here anyway he was having boiled chicken and boiled potatoes every day all the lads were on the coach going oh look let's ask let's ask for McDonald's and I was like okay I'll ask them and they was like what are you going to ask it? I was like what you, you can't ask for McDonald's <laughs> I don't eat McDonald's but I'll ask them <laughs> so I asked Obviously, the managers went, what, McDonald's? Are you joking? And I was like, well, I, was like, I don't even want it. I want this with, like, Bex and that. And they was like, no, 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 we, we didn't ask. So we ended up having an argument on the bus. So then I went to punch him, and I ended up punching the man. Oh, dear. Oh, God. <laughs> End of my England career. <laughs> I feel it's actually quite refreshing to hear someone who sort of is, is not quite sycophantic in football and it sort of speaks their own mind. Um, Peter, Sim, how do you sort of feel? It's quite interesting, isn't it? Did I actually hear that right? You, you went to punch... Who, who were you trying to punch? I went to punch Beckham. Right, and you ended up punching... Because he tried to mug me off, saying, oh, I never said that. And I was like, well, I don't even eat McDonald's. So why would I ask for McDonald's for when I don't even eat it? 
Right. Like, no, no, I didn't. And then there was obviously, because it's Beckham, they were going, all his mates, going, no, he didn't say that. And then they used to do things like, because they would come down and be really busy in the morning for breakfast. They'd come down, like, say you have to be down at 10, they'd be there at half past nine. So, like, me, Boyar, and would come down, say, like, at 10 o'clock for our breakfast. But then they would write all the stuff on your, you know, you've got to do a tick list for what you're eating that day, and they would, like, write my stuff down, like, what I've been having. And just the stupid things like that. But then when I met Beckham again in, in uh, like Al, he was like, oh, I'm really sorry about all that. So I was with Chris Armstrong. And I was like, that's Beckham over there. And I was like, where you look, Frick? Like, come here. <laughs> this is when he was obviously playing for Man United and like massive then. And I was like, yeah. you're playing out of order, man. He was like, no, I'm really sorry. You know, it wasn't really me. I was like, all right, cool. Anyway, whatever, I know. Everyone was Beckham, Beckham, Beckham. It was all Beckham. But then, obviously, I remember the manager, because none of them could do diving properly, but I just mm. learned that Jürgen Klinsmann had to dive properly. <laughs> Dave Sexton, he was like, right, right, okay, we'll all watch Beckham. And I was like, I was like, he can't dive. I mean, he can't, I mean, he just looks like he's actually diving. Like, you've got to have a tackle and yeah. contact before you can dive. I was like, oh, I'll show you. And then the only good thing was like, was like, oh, okay, look, let's watch him how he does it, and I'll show him. <laughs>